Welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek Discovery podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I am really excited to be back talking about Discovery again after way too many weeks not doing that. I agree. I have missed talking about it. I have missed you, Glenn. I've missed the forum. I've missed all of it. Normally, we try to have funny intros, but I don't really have anything funny this week because I'm just so excited to be back. I did watch an awful lot of Star Trek over break. I made it almost all the way through the entirety of the animated series. And most importantly, I introduced my partner, Elizabeth, to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. No, you didn't. She'd never seen it? She had never seen it before. What? She hadn't seen just the new one or anything, had she? No, she had not seen that either, so it wasn't ruined for her. It wasn't spoiled for her. Okay, okay. All right. How'd it go? Uh, turns out, uh, Ricardo Montalban, very attractive man. I'm still hearing about it, uh, but I but I don't mind. I think, I think E and I have very different tastes. <laughs> <laughs> well... I'm Valerie Hoagland, and uh, I think instead of saying something funny, I I might just tell a a quick story that's related to the end of the podcast here, uh, which is that when my boss today asked me what I was doing this evening, I said, I got to go buy some moonshine. And somehow I didn't lose my job. So um, that will come back for the cocktail at the end of the episode. Well, I'm looking forward to that, and uh, we can add moonshine to the speakeasy that we run together in the Jeffries Tubes. Today we're talking about the 10th episode of Star Trek Discovery, Despite Yourself. And Glenn, I have to say, I'm disappointed because I was getting really used to those obtuse and referential titles that let us go digging through poems and classical mythology and do some Latin translations. And this is just a title. Yeah, a little disappointed on on that end, but I think we've got our work cut out for us for this episode, which was written by Sean Cochran. And, and... Yeah. Which we all knew was coming. It was directed by Jonathan Freaks. Riker made this episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I was trying to say. Um, he he did, and he does not guest star in the end of it in a chef's jacket or anything like the end of Enterprise. Though I don't think he directed that episode. I kind of just want that to be true. And I will say, I'm not a Ricardo Montalban fan, but but I Riker's a guy I can get behind. That 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 didn't come out right. <laughs> oh, I think I think it did, and I think everyone who's hearing the tone in your voice knows that knows that you said exactly what you meant to say. <laughs> I mean, maybe if it were season one pre beard Riker, it's what I meant. Now we're getting into your controversial opinions. You don't like Ricardo Montalban, and you prefer beardless Riker. Uh, this is going to be the most forum activity we've ever had. Yeah, this is how I lost all my friends. <laughs> Well, we knew, I think we knew a lot of things were coming that we did get in this episode. We did know that Jonathan Frakes was going to direct one. And I think we almost all predicted that we were going to get the Mirror Universe. But I did not know we were going to get them together. And this was an absolutely awesome marriage. Jonathan Frakes did a phenomenal job with what I think was a really good episode, not just of Discovery, but I think of, of all Star Trek. I really enjoyed the strong themes in this episode and how every story related to that theme. I So as always, I'm the one who accidentally like reads spoilers on the internet. And I had forgotten until I started watching the episode that I had read a long time ago that the episode Jonathan Frakes was going to direct was going to be the Mirror Universe episode. Yet somehow in the last week, being reminded that Jonathan Frakes was directing this, I didn't put two and two together. So I was still surprised, even though somewhere in the back of my brain, I had that knowledge. And Glenn, I think 
I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I'm going to give everything the benefit of the doubt till I'm done talking to you. But I think nobody is going to be surprised to hear me say I wasn't a huge fan of this episode right off the bat. Um, it was very violent. It was all the things that I kind of don't want in my trek and that I've expressed some hesitation about before on the podcast. So I, I think I'm back in that place of this isn't really what I wanted, but also I was on the edge of my seat. Well, that's how we do it. And it makes for better radio when we disagree. Should we just get into it? Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully I have something new to disagree about. Uh, fingers crossed on that. <laughs> <laughs> the episode opens where we left off in November with our crew finding themselves amid debris from some sort of space battle and uncertain whether they've arrived at Starbase 46 as they'd intended. And there are several mysterious things about their situation here. The weapons damage is from Federation ships, and the debris is from the hull of a Klingon ship, but some of the signatures and the physical characteristics just aren't right. And Saru is able to verify that they are at the location of Starbase 46, but almost nothing else is where it is supposed to be. Yeah, and that's that's right when I knew, right when they said that. And I have to say, they do a remarkable job, really, with the seamless transitions between episodes. Like... They've really made it seem like the whole season, more or less, is like one long movie that they've literally just cut. I haven't actually gone back and watched Into the Forest I Go since we did our recap episode. And so I actually thought that just maybe 10 or 15 seconds, maybe even a full minute of the footage from this episode actually was from the previous episode. But I wasn't certain. But they have done that before. I think that's right. And it's a nice technique, actually. I, it, it might seem a little hokey and like they're they're wasting 140th of the episode on doing something like that. But I think it does create this effect that you point to of this this seamlessness. Uh, and, and I think it's really excellent. Yeah, it's definitely different, right? Because we don't normally think of Trek as one long story arc. And Discovery is really trying to get us used to that here by showing how really interconnected everything that they do is. And they do that across episodes and within them as well. Yeah, it's all very tightly plotted, and I and I really love it. Well, our, our mysteries get compounded now with the arrival of a Vulcan ship, which attacks Discovery. Discovery tries to fire back, but has trouble targeting the ship because something about it is is different. As they're struggling to fight this Vulcan ship, the starship Cooper arrives in turn and dispatches the Vulcans, whom the captain of the Cooper describes as rebels. It's at this point that Saru discovers that the quantum signatures of the Cooper and the Vulcan ship do not match the quantum signature of the rest of the universe. Unless, Captain Lorca speculates, this is not their universe. Yeah, so it was very, it was very kind of hit you over the head if you know what a mirror universe is and you've you know watched Trek before. But I, but I didn't mind it. I, it didn't feel poorly delivered. And I thought it was, I thought the Cooper swooping in and they come over the comm and they're like having trouble there. Let me take care of it for you, which is a very mirror universe thing to do. Of just like you know, we're the bad guys and we're having fun being the bad guys. I, I thought it was really, really whimsical and and kind of right on point for the hokiness or the fun or bad acting or whatever you want to call it of a lot of Mirror episodes really came out in that one little moment. We never actually see the guy who is captaining the Cooper, but he sounds like he's doing a, a bad John Wayne impersonation to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was trying to say. 
you're right to say that this was over the top for people who are familiar with Trek for, for trackers, but you know, for people for whom this is their first Trek, and there, there are a lot of them out there in the audience, uh, I think recapitulating where we left off and doing this bit of, and, and making it clear what's going on, I think is just a part of their responsibility as, as storytellers here. Yeah, totally. And I love hokey and poorly acted. I mean, you know, I'm complimenting them for going the other way, but I would, <laughs> I would love a hokey, poorly acted Star Trek show. We all know that. And I liked all the the little mysteries, even if they just get solved for us right away. And there were a couple of things I left out, really, of my my recap of the teaser. And one, one of them that is also something of a mystery at this point in the story is that when Tyler comes to the bridge, Saru's threat ganglia activate like in a way, in a in an, in an aggressive way that we've never seen before. And so we we also suspect right away that something is up with Tyler, if we haven't already been suspecting that. Yeah, and he's late. Right? Like, Lorca makes this comment. It's like, nice of you to join us. And Tyler's just like, uh-huh, whatever. Which is, you know, not what a chief of security might normally do when they're in a very precarious situation. So we already knew that he was in a bad way. And this is just reminding us that he's he's losing a little bit of control over his, like, you know, basic, basic executive functions of his daily life. Yeah, and we're going to see this throughout. And one more thing that we get in the teaser that we should address before we move on is that Stamets is alive, but he is in not a very good mental state. He's kind of going in and out of, I don't know, maybe unconsciousness, but certainly going in and out of having possession of his faculties. And he cannot use the spore drive. And this is important for the plot. Things aren't going super well is basically what we're learning in this teaser. Yeah, we go into the credits and I think these guys are in a lot of trouble and I want to know how they're going to get out of it. And of course, at this point, though, I think you have inferred, you as an, you as a viewer had inferred that this was the mirror universe. You know, it's not explicit yet at this point where they are, even though we'll take Lorca at face value that this is a different universe than theirs. It's not clear yet that this is the mirror universe. And to be fair, we I think it was in the last episode that aired in episode nine when um, Lorca is explaining to Stamets all the possibilities, all the data that they have and what can be done with it from all the jumps. You know, I think Lorca mentions multiple parallel universes. So you're right. I I wasn't quite sure which alternate universe they would be in. And I, I thought for a second Discovery might go in a totally new way and give us a different alternate universe, which I think actually would have been kind of cool. It would have been, but I loved this as well as we will see as we go through the go through the story. Well, I think now that we've beaten the the teaser to death, we can uh, we can get to our first scene after the credits, where Lorca is in his ready room telling his team about the multi universe mycelial network, and this is really just recapping the conversation that he had with Stamets in the mid season finale. But but I think what's interesting about this scene to me, anyway, Valerie, is that he's acting more than a little suspiciously in this scene. He he emphasizes that this multi-universe network is something that he and Stamets wanted to investigate after the war. You know, not right now, is what he's saying. And he also says that, well, he guesses that the 133 micro jumps maybe mapped out the network more fully, which pr- enabled them to accidentally make this jump to another universe. But we as an audience know full well that he knows 
that those 133 micro jumps did that because it was something he was trying to make them do. And then the third thing here is that Saru sarcastically describes this unintended consequence of the jumps as fortunate, but Lorca is very quick to ignore Saru's sarcasm and to describe it as unfortunate. It's, it's sort of uh, protesting too much. Yeah, I I don't even know if sarcastic is the right word. I think he meant what he was saying. You know, it makes sense that Saru Saru's not a character that loves conflict, except for when he randomly loves to beat people up sometimes on sparkly blue planets. So for him to, to kind of say this in a snarky way when he really means it and he's really suspicious about it is true to his character. So, yeah. And then, you know, this really all ties into something we explored at the end of the last episode, which was this screenshot that I had taken, and I'm sure the rest of the internet looked at as well, of, of Lorca overriding the last jump. And when you put that together with him kind of convincing Stamets to do another jump, it's it's pretty impressive stuff, actually, because Lorca is clearly intelligent enough that he's manipulating everything, but he nobody can point to that he did anything. You know, because he didn't ask Stamets to do another jump. He was like, no, 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 no more jumps. But he said it in a way that he knew would manipulate him into doing it. So while Lorca hasn't had a direct, explicit hand, it's been him forcing everybody else kind of to get him where he wanted to go. Yeah, and we're going to see some more of this throughout the episode, both of him manipulating people, uh, but also trying very hard to obscure or obfuscate his actual intentions. And he's getting worse at it as time goes on. And I also thought he wasn't looking so good this time. Did you see that? I felt like he seemed a little haggard. Oh, you know, I didn't. I don't think I picked up on that. I was just so excited, actually, to hear his voice in the previously on and, and for some costume changes that we'll get later in the episode that I, don't, I just don't know that I noticed he was looking haggard. Yeah, I, it was early on. There was a close up of him and I was like, he looks troubled. <laughs> but I agree with you. I'm super excited to talk about the costumes. Well, let's chug right along then. So it is perhaps personally inconvenient for the Discovery to be in a parallel universe at this point. But there are also some serious business stakes. And here we get reminded that the Discovery is in sole possession of the algorithm that will let Starfleet detect cloaked Klingon ships. And without that, the Federation will lose the war. So they must get home. And to that end, Burnham wants to look at the spore drive logs, but Lorca is quick to shut that idea down. He wants to focus on survival first, and then they'll figure out how to get home. But it was clear to us, or at least it, it, it seemed to me anyway, that Lorca does not want Burnham looking at those logs. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing I just mentioned. His override is going to be in there. So it'll be a pretty quick gotcha if they look at the logs. Exactly. And so the, I think the evidence of his meddling is is starting to pile up, as you suggest. And and I wonder how many more episodes it's it's going to take before someone catches him at whatever it is he's actually up to. Yeah, I wonder if Discovery is really going to, you know, throw us for a loop and he's actually, you know, they do this thing where they make him seem like the bad guy and then the good guy and then the bad guy and then the good guy, which is actually remarkable television because that's how really scary bad guys actually work <laughs> is that they manage to charm you and convince you that they're okay and kind of pull you back in. But I, I wonder if they're going to do that a few more times of the yo-yo or if we're going to figure some stuff out. Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited to get there. Yeah, well, let's get on our way getting there then. 
All right. Well, in our our next scene, we're in sick bay where Doctor Colbert and Tilly are caring for Stamets, and Tilly's uh, Tilly's method of caring for Stamets is to try to annoy him into lucidity. Uh, it, it's a brilliant idea. And it's quite cute, but it does not work. He's he's not responsive to it at all. And in fact, he gets a little violent with Doctor Colbert, and he he has some cryptic things to say. In particular, it's a palace. Stay close. So Tilly, of course, saving the day, making every Discovery episode that's terribly dark actually fun for a second, which she will continue to do throughout this episode, which was really fun and I very thoroughly enjoyed. But we'll get to that when we get to that. I did think that this small scene where Stamets throws Colbert across the room was extremely powerful for me. To me, you know, I've had aging grandparents who who have you know, lost their peak brain function, dementia, Alzheimer's, things like that. And when you're not in your proper mind, you can become quite hostile and particularly to those whom you love and who are trying to help you. And this just seemed so on point and moving in a way, especially as Colbert recovers and it's like, it's okay. Like he still wants to care for Stamets and he's still there. And you can see how shocking it was to him, but how his his primary goal is still to just be there for Stamets because he knows that he's not himself. I, I Maybe it's my own personal experience that made it extra touching to me, but I, I thought it was a really beautiful scene. I did as well. Dr. Colbert, as we're going to see throughout this episode, is is full of love for Stamets and is a, and seems to be a natural caregiver. Uh, he's certainly someone I would like to be my doctor. Yes. If still, still do not know by the end of the episode what he is, like what his rank of doctor is. Um, <laughs> if yeah. there even is like a chief medical officer, I was dying for them to kind of give us a clue and they don't. Um, but yes, whatever rank he is, I would also like him to be my doctor. I might also like him to be in love with me. I think Culper's great. Well, I think he's pretty great with Tilly here as well, as she, you know, expresses to him that she feels culpable for Stamets's condition, but he empathizes with the difficult position that that Stamets himself put her in. But he also just prefers to blame Captain Lorca for all of this. Speak of the devil. Yeah, it was a great line, and Wilson Cruz's delivery of it was was kind of gut-wrenching. I mean, he, you could see that he really is seething with anger for Lorca. As he should be. But, you know, while we're just, you know, putting so much fan love on Colbert, he does a great... Like, it's so wonderful to see someone who is such a nuanced character, right? He has so much love for Stamets, yet he also remembers that Stamets screwed up, and he's kind of... He holds the love and the anger and the resentment at the same time, which is, you know, often part of what it means to be in love. And then he has his professional duty on the ship to serve his captain, who he knows is responsible for all of this pain. And he, you know, he doesn't really mince words, but he still is loyal to his captain and and performs his duties. So he's just the hero of the episode, as far as I'm concerned. He's balancing so many things and doing it really well. And we're about to see all of that really in action in this one conversation that he has with Lorca. Uh, when Lorca wants to relieve him from his role as Stamets's caregiver, as, as Stamets's doctor, right? Lorca wants to put someone who has objectivity on the case. But, but Colbert, you know, he questions whether Lorca 
even wants Stamets to get better, or whether perhaps he actually wanted all of this to happen. And of course, we as the audience, I think, have to be asking that same question here, which is, did Lorca bring them to this parallel universe with some sort of purpose in mind? And, you know, recently we were talking about this question of bias in Starfleet duty in another arena. And and here I thought it was an excellent question, again, because it really has us asking, you know, would Stamets be better served by someone who loves him this much or worse served by someone who loves him this much? And that by itself is a very fascinating question. And Colbert argues that he that he is the best doctor on the ship. This is perhaps where you found it a little frustrating because we've had this reference before that there is a chief medical officer who we might all presume to be the best doctor on the ship or at least the most experienced doctor on the ship. But Colbert seems pretty convinced that he's the best doctor on the ship. So still, we don't quite know. I just can't. I want a whole episode about this, please. Yeah, I would I would like a little Star Trek Discovery episode that's just space ER or something like that. Ooh, maybe George Clooney will show up. Oh man, I don't know what I would do with George Clooney and Jason Isaacs on screen together. Yeah, it, the time would stop. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get out of this uh, out of this inevitable time loop and move on to the next scene. Tyler is taking a worker bee outside to recover the data core from the destroyed Klingon ship, and this is going to give them some information about this parallel universe that they're in. But when Tyler sees bodies in the wreckage, he has another torture flashback and starts piloting the worker bee erratically. Over the radio, Burnham tries to calm Tyler by assuring him that the Klingons are dead and that he is safe. And I really like that she's a source of strength for him. I do too, but it's very dangerous as we see kind of at the conclusion of this scene because she has to be professional as well and and also hide, you know, Tyler's increasingly more present symptoms of PTSD, which I'm just going to go ahead and assume by some of the things that we've learned in this episode that Cornwall didn't tell Lorca, you know, what happened on the ship of the dead, or maybe just didn't have the opportunity because she was rushed off to uh, a medical starship, a medical star base or something like that so quickly, because Lorca seems to kind of not know that anything is up with Tyler at all. Yeah, that's a great catch. And you can see that Burnham knows that she's kind of letting on that something might be wrong with Tyler, and then she's going to be in professional trouble if she does that. Yeah, and we're going to see that play out in this episode. And and Lorca, even in, in during this scene, Lorca even indicates to Burnham that he's aware of the romantic relationship that she has with Tyler. And he just asks her point blank, you know, if he can count on her to be professional or if that relationship will get in the way of her ability to care, to objectively carry out his orders. And of course, this is setting us up for a scene later in this episode, but probably also for something highly consequential down the line. I was kind of scared for Burnham in this scene, not just because Lorca is scary, but because we know that she just did let the relationship get in the way of her professionalism because she should have told Lorca he's not capable of piloting that. Like he should not have been allowed to go forth with the extraction. You know, she mentions you got to get it exactly right. Any Nick will, you know, blow it up or, you know, corrupt the data or whatever. And Really, her professional duty was to say something to Lorca to say he needs to come back and someone else needs to do this. And she didn't do that. Yeah, you're right. I wasn't even thinking about the fact that it's it's already happening in this scene. But it is. Yeah, she, she's al- she is already jeopardized. 
Well, before we get out of this scene, there's one more thing that we should mention, which is that the bodies in this wreckage turn out not to be Klingons, but are actually Vulcans and and Dorians. So something is amiss here, but we, we won't find out for a little while. Well, back on board, Tyler goes to the brig to confront Laurel. What did you do to me? He asks. And she says, you know what we did. We did them together. So many things. And she seems here to me to be talking about their sexual encounters. And she seems really to be gaslighting him about his consent. You know, this gets tricky. And, and maybe I'll revisit this when we when we learn a little bit more and we get farther into the episode. But... Doesn't, she still doesn't think she did anything wrong. I posited this as one of the theories, uh, I think, when we last talked about it, which is that she legitimately does not understand that she might have done anything, really, without Tyler's consent. She believes that she did have his consent. And I think that's made very explicit in this scene. Yeah, that's true. I guess, I guess technically it's not gaslighting if you yourself are buying the delusion that you're trying to sell to someone else. But it is certainly having an, it is certainly troubling to him. Yeah, extremely. Yeah, he continues to deny that he would consent to that sort of thing. And, you know, and he's, he's really melting down here and he he lowers the force field and he starts to, to choke her and he demands that she tell him what she did to him. And at this point, things get very interesting. Laurel begins to recite the prayer of Kales. And Tyler goes into a trance and joins her in that recitation. And he does it in Klingon and with a very familiar Klingon voice. Yeah, Glenn, it was a very familiar voice. Um, Do you want to say whose voice it sounded like? Yeah, so this sounds exactly like Voke's voice. In fact, it's probably not even right to say it sounds exactly like Voke's voice. It is Voke's voice. We have actually heard Laurel and Voke recite this prayer of Kalis together. I went and checked it out this morning, and it actually even sounds like it's the same exact bit of dialogue that they didn't even have the actors do it again differently for uh, uh, for this episode. Now, what exactly that means that Voke's voice and and speech is coming out of Tyler's mouth? I think there's still going to be a lot of questions about about what is actually going on here, about what that means. But that is Voke's voice. Yeah, I mean, Klingon is hard, you know, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if they were like, they got like one take of, of it going well, though I would like some behind the scenes of, of different actors, uh, you know, practicing their Klingon in their ready rooms. <laughs> uh, but I think, yeah, you know, I think we were not saying it for a long time and until it felt like it was really necessary to talk about it and the show was really giving us enough evidence that we could talk about it. But I think it's time to say there have been some fan theories out there on the internet that have posited for a while that this is a possibility, that Voke is not gone and that Tyler is connected to that character. And and that seems increasingly clear in this scene and as we move through the episode. So there are a lot of things that Laurel could have done. She could have brainwashed Tyler in some way or actually implanted some sort of, you know, I don't know, what do you implant, plant like a chip or change someone's brain somehow or something like that to make him appear this way. We don't know yet, but we we do know that the book is maybe not gone completely and Tyler has something to do with him. I, I feel comfortable saying that now. Right. And The question of whether or not or to what extent Tyler and Voke are the same person or Tyler is Voke or Voke is Tyler, I think that's interesting as a plot 
element for how the war situation is going to resolve. But I think that what really is much more interesting is what they are doing here with questions of identity. Tyler is asking himself now, who am I and what choice do I have in the matter? And we're going to see this. uh, We're going to see this happening with him throughout this episode that we're also going to see that this theme is applied to most of the characters in this episode. And, And I think it's rather a brilliant choice. I agree that that was the most interesting part of this to me wasn't just this like plot twist, but but what but what's going on on a deeper level, particularly because, you know, this scene makes us think that something is clicked on in Tyler's brain. Tyler's not Tyler anymore. You know, now he's suddenly a bad guy. And the scene actually ends with with that switch being flipped and then Tyler flipping it back off and him saying no. I don't I don't want this. This isn't who I want to be. And Laurel, you know, kind of cries after him that the prayer should have worked or flipped that switch somehow. Yet he's running away and that's not what he wants. And he runs to Burnham, someone he loves in this identity that he presently is occupying as Tyler. And that's a choice that he's making, despite whatever Laurel did to him. And there's some specific things in this scene that really emphasize this. Like Lorel, right after the prayer, Lorel tells him that he has another name and she tells him to say it, but he he won't, right? It's not working. And in fact, he gets angrier. He becomes more Tyler in some sense, or at least is wanting to assert his Tyler identity and, you know, threatens her with a phaser. And he says, if you don't tell me what you did to my mind, to my soul, I'm going to make you scream it as you die. And so he he's extraordinarily concerned about his identity there, right? He's struggling to figure out what it is and to to understand how he can control it. And, and it's just really awesome. And I think it would be such an interesting story arc if Tyler, this person that we've been a little bit suspicious of from the beginning, let's say he turns out to be to be Vogue, yet he chooses to live his life as Tyler in love with Burnham and loyal to Starfleet and as a main character on this show, which is all about a war with the, with the species that he is. That is very interesting if that's where they're going. Well, and I think, I think that is where we're going. We're going to get there, you know, in act three of the episode. So maybe we'll, we'll table that part of the conversation until we get there. And we'll pick up with this other strand that you already mentioned, which is that the Tyler, talks next to Burnham after this encounter with Laurel. And our, our next scene, Tyler is in the galley staring at a drink, thinking about what just happened with Laurel. And Burnham arrives and Tyler tells her about the flashbacks, but he doesn't actually tell her about the confrontation with Laurel, which I think is very important. And he expresses that he's worried about being quarantined for his PTSD when he's badly needed right now. You know, they're in this parallel universe and they're trying to get out. They need him to be contributing to the mission, not stuck in his quarters. And he tells Burnham that he can manage his PTSD. And Burnham agrees not to tell anyone. And here we get her acting unprofessionally again, letting her her feelings for Tyler get in the way of her duty and, and also probably of her logic. And in fact, yeah, this is one of those moments that's similar to, you know, how I felt when Tilly didn't tell on Stamets, which is that, no, everybody on this show is smarter than this. And Tyler's argument that he's badly needed is immediately debunked by the fact that it's way worse if in a moment where he's badly needed, he's not there 
or he acts, you know, unlike himself. That is so much worse. And that is totally worth him being quarantined and, and kind of out of the fight. And Burnham knows that. And I get that love is powerful, but it was frustrating to to watch Burnham fall victim to his excuses, especially when we know he's lying, you know, and she's trusting him. And Burnham does not trust easily. So I, I think I was a little upset. I was very upset on Burnham's behalf in this scene. Yeah, it's a really complicated position for both of them. I mean, I, I empathize with Tyler here in that he's trying to grab onto normalcy and also his identity, which right now for him is his role on the ship. And so, you know, without that role, without that function, what is actually his identity? And, you know, which is all coming into question in so many different ways here. So I do understand his need for that. It's not the right call. Uh, you know, on his part, on Burnham's part, uh, on anybody's part, really, right? He should not be uh, exercising his his duties right now. I do understand where everyone's coming from and how this is all playing out. I think that I just, you know, the ideals of the Federation are that people are trained better than this. You know, they go through training where they're put through this kind of stress test and they know to do you know, the more professional thing. However, it's a much more interesting and compelling plot if they don't, I suppose. So I should just let it go. Right. Well, and I'm not sure how much training anyone in the Federation has gotten for maybe turning out to secretly be a Klingon after all. Well, not him, but you know, like emotional bias, you know, <laughs> and, and relationship protocol for relationships among crew people. It feels like something that they probably test for in the Academy. I'm just saying. I agree. And I think it's telling that Burnham is the one who's struggling with this the most, because, of course, she is also the deeply logical one who, um, until very recently, had never even been kissed, though perhaps that's part of what's going on. This is still her first uh, her first boyfriend. She's basically in middle school right now. I was going to say, if we think of Burnham as uh, like a, a preteen, this makes a lot more sense. <laughs> yes, right. Making bad choices about her first crush. Yeah, I think, I think it's all coming up into perspective now. I make bad choices about all my crushes, Glenn, so we don't always <laughs> outgrow that one. Well, let's move into our next scene in the lab where uh, Tilly is assessing the the Klingon data core. And there are Vulcan chips in the Klingon core, which doesn't make any sense, but will make it easier for them to access the data. And Burnham wonders here if the Klingons, the Vulcans, and the Andorians have some sort of an alliance in this universe. Yeah, and this is also the fun scene where Burnham reminds us point blank and without much emotion that she is a xenoanthropologist. <laughs> I found that line hilarious. I don't know if you noticed that. I wasn't sure that reading through space Wikipedia was the primary function of a xenoanthropologist or the special purview of a <laughs> xenoanthropologist, but it was good to be reminded. This is the first episode back after the break, and presumably, you know, CBS was trying to even bring in new viewers, so they've got to give us all this information, but it was definitely a line that stood out to me as well. Well, before we get out of this scene, I want to talk a little bit about Tilly here. Tilly is very worried about Stamets. Um, she says, he has to get better, right? And I think that Tilly is really the voice of the audience right there, right? We're all feeling that way about Stamets right now. Totally, completely. And she's, 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 I think she's one of the best actresses on the show. She's very convincing. And she has to do a lot in a small character in a lot of ways. And she knocks it out of the park every time. 
Yeah, she really shines in this episode, as as we're going to see. And let's get closer to her shining movement and just just and just chug right along here into our next scene, which opens with an extreme close up of the Terran Empire emblem from the Mirror Universe. And I don't mind admitting, Valerie, that I lost my mind with excitement <laughs> at this. Did you lose your mind in happiness or in anger? No, happiness, happiness, and just joy and glee. I had to pause the episode and get up and just walk around. I, I just couldn't couldn't sit still. I, I really wanted to just jump up and down and scream. I was so excited to see it. See, Glenn, I thought maybe you would be upset at the redesign. <laughs> yes. Well, I'll say I loved the design of the emblem here. I have the version of this emblem from the Enterprise episodes about the Mirror Universe tattooed on my shoulder. But now that I have seen this emblem, I kind of wish I'd waited 15 years and gotten this one. It is so cool. Really? So what do you like about it? Because I think a lot of people are having a bad reaction to it. Well, there were a number of things that I liked about it. I liked the design of the sword. To me, it had an art deco, very angular feel to it. That's an art style that really appeals to me to begin with. The sword also was a little bit shorter. It was certainly much shorter than we see it in the original series. So it looked, the overall shape looked more balanced. But something that I really loved about the way we see it just here in this scene where it's on a computer screen is that the earth part of the emblem is moving on screen it is it is the globe rotating around and i thought that was really awesome cool. i'm very very glad to hear this because i um i didn't really have an opinion other than you know i was attached to the other logo so anything new is it is you know a change you got to get used to it but i was i really didn't know what to expect from you because knowing of your tattoo I knew that you you were the fan that needed to react, right? We needed to hear it from you. <laughs> and I'm glad to hear that you were happy. And where you really seem to think the logo is awesome. I also think the costumes are awesome. Well, and we'll get to talking about the costumes eventually. But costumes and emblems aside, at this juncture, the point of this scene is that Burnham is going to brief Lorca and the audience about what she found in the salvaged data. She explains what the Mirror Universe is all about for people who are new or who have forgotten. Here, in this Mirror Universe, there is no Federation, but instead there is a Terran Empire. Yet, everyone from their universe, from the Prime Universe, has a doppelganger here, or a mirror version of themselves. And the Terran Empire is the antithesis of the Federation. They're an oppressive, racist, xenophobic culture that controls all known space and is ruled by a faceless emperor. Uh, we also learn here that there's a serious rebellion going on. The, the Terran Empire is always fighting about something. And this is a very interesting moment in time for Discovery to have stepped into. And I appreciated this little recap. And I loved the use of the word antithesis. It's the perfect word for this. I think it really, you know, this show we've talked about a lot. They do so much in small moments. They get so much information out there from little things. And I think that their vocabulary choices in this scene and in this explanation really did that. I also really appreciated the inclusion of the word racist in, in their list because I think xenophobic might have been all we said in previous treks. And there's a lot about this show that is explicitly anti-racist and anti-oppressive. And I really loved that they threw that word in there. Yeah, it's kind of as if they're making it clear, making sure that everyone who's watching the show knows that when they say xenophobic, 
what they mean is racist, that the allegory for different alien species in the, in, in, in the universe here, in this fictional universe, is races on the planet Earth. And I suppose it's good to make that point clear from time to time. I think it's very good to make that point clear. So I was extremely grateful for it. And this was, you're right, this was so fun. And I even like, I had some, I I don't know, like vicarious excitement. I kind of wish I had been there with you when you were watching this episode and when you saw that logo pop up, because, you know, I could hear the glee in your voice just talking about it now. I can only imagine what it was like in real time. I think, though, Glenn, this is probably a good time to do, you know, as we often do with some longstanding Trek things to talk a little bit about the mirror universe, because we keep saying mirror universe and they don't say that in this episode. So I think maybe we should explain. Yeah, I guess that's right, Valerie. And we've actually been talking about the mirror universe showing up in Discovery since we saw Stamets's reflection in the mirror have this kind of independent moment. And in fact, actually, while we were talking about that episode, one of our listeners wrote a pretty good post on our forum. In fact, a really excellent description of what the mirror universe is. And I think we might actually just start with what that listener wrote. Yeah, that listener actually corrected us, (laughs) which we always appreciate, because we'd been talking about it a little bit like a bizarro world, um, which is, I think, something we, we said because of the whole doppelganger or version of oneself, person with your name that exists in the mirror universe. Uh, but we were we were corrected and I'm just gonna I'm gonna read from it so the quote given to us by a listener actually comes from Scott Tipton who um, is a Star Trek comic book author and in the end notes to one of his comics he gives this explanation I'm just gonna read it straight off the forum the mirror universe isn't the bizarro world these characters aren't the opposites of the characters we know They've just been dramatically reforged by living in a much more unforgiving and dangerous environment. So while it could be tempting to make a stereotypical evil twin character, it's much more gratifying to find ways to keep that character true to what we know about him or her and then watch in horror at how they've been perverted. And it's that is a good quote. And I think that really helps us understand the mirror universe and get at the deeper themes of this episode that you already pointed out, Glenn, which are themes of identity. Yeah, that's a really excellent description of of what the mirror universe is. And I was so grateful for our listener for pointing that out. This listener, I should also say, highly recommends the uh, Star Trek The Next Generation mirror universe comic book series that is ongoing now. I'm lazily resisting it until it is all uh, together in one collection. But I see it every month in my comic book shop, and I can't wait to, to check it out eventually. I can't believe you just submitted on air. You only go to the comic book shop once a month. Oh, no, I go every week. It just it only comes out once a month. Okay, let's be clear. I mean, I can see it from my window. They also sell coffee. So I'm there more than once a week. Okay, all right. Just, just want to make sure keeping up appearances. So so that's an explanation of what the mirror universe is. And we see this, right? We learn, we just learned that the Terran Empire is a bad place where people are bad. And subject to that environment, turns out, the people are worse. And that's very interesting. We could dive into that on a deeper psychological level as well. But I think what might be more useful for the podcast and for listeners is to kind of chart the history of the mirror universe, or at least cover the highlights of what's important to understanding the history of the mirror universe in Trek. And that all starts, as everything does, with the original series. And I think, Glenn, you have some things to say about some key um, original series episodes. Yes, it's interesting that you say episodes there, Valerie, because it will get a little bit complicated. Because if you had said episodes in 1970, when Star Trek was going off the air, 
Uh, so they would have a person would have corrected you and said, "Well, there's only one Mirror Universe episode in the original series, and that is the second season episode Mirror Mirror, in which by means of a transporter accident, Kirk, Bones, Uhura, and Scotty wind up transported to the." mirror universe version of the enterprise where they meet spock who has a famous goatee and have to figure out where they are how to get back to where they come from while navigating an enterprise that is full of of intrigue and also and especially perhaps full of of violence and it's it's a really excellent episode i I watched it again this morning to prep for us talking tonight but really that was just an excuse to watch it again because it's awesome and really one of my favorites yeah, and what's so interesting about that episode is while the the doppelgangers don't interact, we get to watch both versions of them on screen. That parallel is drawn for us directly. We get to see both of their characters acted out. And and as you pointed out, you can tell the difference between Spock and Spock because goatee and because of some key differences in the costumes, which Glenn, I think you also wanted to say something about. Yeah, so one of the key features of the Mirror Universe is not just that everyone is, I think we tend to say in a shorthand way that they're evil, which Scott Tipton, of course, would caution us against saying, in this episode, in fact, Spock actually uses the contrast of civilized versus barbarian or civilized versus savage, and that might be a better way to look at it. But one of the other features of the Mirror Universe is that it is sexy. It's a sexy place. <laughs> it's, there is a lot of sexiness happening. It is, uh, people are overtly, I don't know, almost predatorily sexual uh, with each other. We see that uh, throughout Mirror Mirror, but also the costumes. Uh, people are not wearing a whole lot of clothing. M- many people are wearing still basically the same type of outfit, but the women are have their midriffs showing. I guess the skirts are, are about the same. I think the necklines might be a little lower as yeah, well. Yeah, the skirts can't get any shorter than they already are <laughs> in the original series. It's yeah, like, right. Literally, it's, it would not be, it would become a shirt if it got even a, just a little bit shorter. So, so yeah, I think it's a mid-driven neckline issue. And of course, as I'm sure you're about to say, a sash issue. Yes, there are gold sashes that everyone is wearing, but but also it's not just restricted to the women wearing less Kirk is wearing less as well. He has uh, he's wearing just basically a gold vest with also a gold sash. So we get to see Shatner's muscular arms in his in his heyday here. Uh, and some of the other male characters also aren't aren't wearing a whole lot. Yeah, you know, the gold sash isn't really that dramatic of a costume change. But it does serve to emphasize a sense of hedonism, which I think you already pointed out with this like predatory sexual nature, you know, gold, luxury, earthly pleasures, those kinds of things, greed. And and the gold really emphasizes that. Well, we're going to we're going to get back to sashes and gold and sexiness here. But I think we should we should turn to this second original series episode that has something to do with the mirror universe. And that's a third season episode called The Tholian Web. When it aired, this episode had nothing to do with the Mirror Universe, so you can watch it and and you won't necessarily know that this has come to be wrapped up in the Mirror Universe. This episode is about a Starfleet vessel, the USS Defiant, which is going to come up for us very shortly here in our Discovery episode. 
But where this episode really comes into play in the Mirror Universe is when Star Trek Enterprise picks up the Tholian web and kind of uses it as a springboard for telling its own Mirror Universe story. And Valerie, I know you were really excited to talk about the Enterprise episodes because you're, you're, you are, although we are both Enterprise apologists, you are the chief Enterprise apologist, I think, perhaps <laughs> in all of Trek fandom. Uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, sure. Yeah. So Enterprise deals with the Mirror Universe. I will also say that we're not going to talk about Deep Space Nine's Mirror Universe episodes, and that's because they don't directly relate to what we're getting on Discovery here, in the sense that they're they're not you know integral to the plot or referenced in in any way. But even though we're not going to talk about the Deep Space Nine Mirror Universe episodes, they are of course worth checking out. And if you're interested in the Mirror Universe, you can go look there. But the two Mirror Universe episodes on Star Trek Enterprise, which come really close to the end of the fourth season, which I never really thought about before, but it's quite interesting. The fourth season is the last season, and these are, and these are some of the last episodes. So to me, it's interesting that they took up so much space with the Mirror Universe episodes when they knew that the show wasn't going to go on, though I guess it makes sense that they wanted to throw some in there at the end. Anyway, costume stuff on the Enterprise in the Mirror Universe is probably my least favorite of of Star Trek doing this. So just like on TOS, for the women's outfits, they kind of just cut out the middle. And they did the same for the Enterprise, except the outfit on Enterprise is a jumpsuit. So when you just kind of cut out the middle of a jumpsuit, the effect is really not the same. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the Enterprise episodes are very interesting because they're the only Trek Mirror Universe episodes that don't involve any form of crossover. They are two standalone episodes where we're just watching Enterprise except in the Mirror Universe. Nobody jumps between one place to the other. Um, the counterparts in both universes are not on the same ship. And, and nothing is really explained before or after these episodes. They just happen and we are left with them. So there isn't a whole lot that's relevant to Discovery from these episodes. Other than that, these episodes heavily feature the USS Defiant, which, as we'll get to in our plot recap in a couple of scenes, gets a brief mention here in this Discovery episode. But I also did think it was worth talking about the costumes, because not only is the midriff cut out, we get guards that have different costumes than the people they're protecting, which is kind of interesting. And on Enterprise... They don't really do much other than because they found this original series ship, they just let all the actors put on the 1960s uniforms for fan service. So that's really all they do. They don't change people's hair that much or anything. There's one character that gets a really, really bodacious scar on his face, but that's about it. And that's in keeping with the original series episode where Sulu also has a pretty serious business scar on his face. Though in the original series, they are doing some crazy stuff with people's hair. I mean, it's like a big part of what the Mirror Universe is. It is called the Mirror Universe because you need a massive mirror to see what they've done with your hair. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think as far as hair goes on the Enterprise Mirror Universe episodes, I think that they in, like let... Scott Bakula grow his hair out from a buzz cut like an extra two weeks and then maybe dyed it black. But it's not really much of an effect. He just looks like he needs a haircut. <laughs> and they gave to Paul, our Vulcan character with a very short haircut, they give her long hair. So as we'll see also in Discovery, we are still stuck in the trope of 
long hair on a woman equals sexy hair on a woman, which I would be totally happy to move away from. And, you know, Burnham is a great example of that. Uh, But we do see that again brought into Discovery with Tilly's character, as we will get to shortly. Yeah, we're we're very nearly there. So let's actually get into our, our next scene where where we are on the bridge and Discovery has to talk to the starship Cooper that has just saved them from the Vulcans. And they have to pretend to be the ISS Discovery, that is the Imperial State Ship Discovery, rather than the USS Discovery. And now we get basically the best thing in the episode, even better than the emblem, the real ISS Discovery is commanded by Captain Tilly. Oh, oh, although Glenn, I have to say the real best thing in the episode is later when um Tilly is being prepped for her character and she's given all of her nicknames and one of them is Captain Killy. That that was so good. They did they got me with that pun. They really did. Well, I will say it's not very clever, but it was a nice list of nicknames. We'll get there very shortly. For now, Captain Tilly is going to have to talk to the Cooper's captain and get the Cooper to go away. And Tilly, of course, is nervous about this because she talks a lot. But Lorca simply tells her to defy her every instinct, which I think is a pretty great a pretty great line. I think that's some advice, Glenn, that you are going to be giving me at pretty much every major life event in my future. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I need to hear it more often than not as well. Well, needless to say, the conversation doesn't go very well, even with Lorca's coaching. So Captain Tilly turns the conversation over to Lorca, uh, who takes over in his disguised capacity as her chief engineer. He needs to disguise his voice, and so he dons a Scottish accent. And this is essentially Jason Isaacs doing his best impression of Scotty from the original series. Oh, and this, so this also good. was just awesome. Yeah, yeah. It, really, it really made my day. This whole scene really was wonderful. I'm smi- I have a huge smile on my face right now, just even remembering it, which feels good because by the time I got to the end of this episode, I wasn't in the happiest place. So it feels good to, to remember the good times. I was wondering if the Scottish accent, if the homage to Scotty here was scripted or directed by Frakes, or if that was actually an acting choice that Jason Isaacs made on set. I'm also wondering how many different voices he might have done in different takes and if we'll ever get a chance to see him doing those. Well, at any event, the Cooper eventually goes away, but this was a really close call. And so the next time, they're going to need to be better prepared to pretend to be evil. And so they're going to have to look the part. And now we get a sort of preparation montage as new uniforms and new insignia are being made. And I thought these looked very cool. We've talked already how much I like the the insignia, the the emblem, but the uniforms too are are really neat. They I can't I couldn't quite tell if they were actually black or just a darker shade of blue. Yeah, I couldn't tell either, especially later we see we have a long scene towards the end of the episode where Burnham is taking off all of her armor, all of her Terran Empire costume. And underneath, you have something very similar to the Discovery uh, uniforms, which struck me actually as a darker blue, but I couldn't tell the difference either. But this is a super fun montage. I ha- Oh my gosh, it was really fun to watch. Yeah, and it's great because we get Captain Lorca speaking over it, which, and I always love his voiceovers. But mostly this scene is actually about Tilly becoming, you know, evil Captain Tilly or maybe savage Captain Tilly, we should say. 
and and we get a good look at at her here where she's wearing this metal top over this darker starfleet uniform this struck me as the adaptation of the the gold sash from the original series yeah and i think glenn you were probably expecting me to say this listeners were expecting me to say this i love what they did here because they took the the spirit of you know the sash from the original series episodes and just also the spirit of like the hardness of the Terran empire that they might wear an armor type uniform. And they took those two things. They made sexy, badass uniforms and they didn't have to really objectify anybody to do it, which was pretty cool. Yeah. And by doing this, it actually places the emphasis on the sexiness of the mirror universe characters in their behavior, in their acting, in the character rather than the wardrobe itself. And I think that that I think that probably was a lot more fun for the actors, but it also I think really emphasizes this broader theme of identity in ways that just giving people new and sexier costumes doesn't do. Yeah, and I think hands down this is the best acting we've ever seen in a Mirror Universe episode in Trek. I was really impressed with the delivery from each character and how well they were able to embody their new characters, but also then switch right back to the characters that we know them as on Discovery. And even to a certain point, you know, later in the episode, when they're having to act as these Terran Empire characters, I was like, well, isn't it lucky that Discovery is full of a bunch of really good actors? That's really helping them out of this bind. And I think later we're going to want to talk about Burnham embracing her role when when she becomes really the crux of their solution for getting back to their universe. Uh, but I think we should we should zoom back to looking at Captain Tilly here. There's a couple of things I want to point out here. One, I think just talking still about her appearance, uh, her haircut is really cool. I want that haircut. Uh, yes. Well, Elizabeth wants that haircut as well, and she is actually getting a haircut soon. So there's a real good chance that's actually going to happen. Always stealing my thunder. But you know what? I support her. <laughs> well, the best thing I think that happens here is that we get Captain Tilly's biography. Burnham has accessed this from the Klingon data core. So we learn that the real Captain Tilly gained her command through murder, which is how it works in the Mirror Universe. And she also has, as you mentioned earlier, Valerie, some nicknames, which include Captain Killy. And as fun as the nicknames are, we're going to move on now to our next scene in the ready room where we get some real serious information about Mirror Universe counterparts. Lorca and Burnham have finally discovered who their Mirror Universe counterparts are. And we learned that Burnham was the captain of the Shenzhou in this universe, while Lorca was still the captain of the Baran. Lorca wants to know if the Baran crew is still alive in this universe, because, of course, they, they have died in the Prime Universe. And Burnham tells Lorca that his counterpart tried to stage a coup and that Burnham was sent after him. And, and Lorca probably killed Burnham in this episode, though she is only presumed dead at this moment. But that after this, other Imperial forces blew up Lorca's ship but Lorca escaped, and this is almost exactly what happened to Lorca in the Prime Universe, or what happened to the Prime Universe, Baran. And at this moment, Lorca says that he had been hoping for a better version of himself over here. And I have to wonder again about the extent of Lorca's knowledge, and also about his motivations. Yeah, I really did think this was an extremely 
painful scene in a lot of ways, especially right after the Tilly scene where it's kind of fun to say to see these two characters that are looking to this universe almost for redemption in some sort of way for mistakes that they feel they've made in their own lives and hoping for a a better version of themselves here and they aren't able to find it and it's kind of profoundly sad yeah it seems like he's disappointed in himself and he actually goes on in this scene to talk about destiny and I think that one of the things that he's getting at here is that some things are inevitable. And one of the things that he's wrestling with is that in every universe, every iteration of him is someone who let the let his crew on the Baran die, someone who is not as good as he wants to be. And that has to be disappointing and has to be heartbreaking. It's almost kind of the most heartbreaking way to live in self-awareness of your flaws without the ability to change them. Yeah, I think that's something that we're seeing here about Lorca, and this this may not turn out to be correct as we learn more about him, but this attitude here that he was hoping that he could find a better version of himself and then talking about destiny almost seems like he's washing his hands of any actual agency, any actual control over his identity, right? Rather than striving to be better, he is hoping to to find a better version of himself. This is really interesting, Glenn, because I hadn't considered this before. And I do think ultimately, it's probably not where they're going to go. But this scene does invite the possibility that this was Lorca's goal. This was Lorca's reason for bringing us to the mirror universe was this redemption narrative was this version of himself where his crew was still alive and he hadn't abandoned them. Did he know that they were coming here and is part of what he's interested in finding the crew of the Baran? I mean, I don't, I'm not quite sure what he would be wanting to do there, but it does suggest that this somehow motivated him. I have a feeling there's going to be, there's something bigger we don't know yet. And that this was probably just a secret hope that, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I got the other thing plus this little thing I wanted rather than the main motivation. Uh, But it's an interesting thought. Yeah. And I have some thoughts about what might actually be motivating Lurka, about what Lurka's plan might actually be. Oh, fascinating. I don't have any thoughts about that. So I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to get there very shortly. In fact, uh, we can we can move into the next scene in the ready room here where Lurka is briefing his team on the plan he has for getting home. Lorca claims that according to data from the rebels, from this data core they got from the, the salvaged ship, he knows that Discovery is not the first ship to cross over from the Prime Universe to the Mirror Universe. The USS Defiant from the Tholian Web and from those Enterprise episodes also came here. And what matters to Lorca is that the Defiant did this without a spore drive. So if they can find information about the Defiant then they might be able to copy what it did to cross universes and repeat that process and get home. But this information is classified, so they're going to have to get on an actual ISS ship and get the proper clearance to access the data. I think this is a really cool plot point. 
I think it's a really clever way to solve the lack of spore drive problem in a way that connects it to Trek without really seeming like fan service, but actually kind of serving a point. Yeah, I feel like invoking Enterprise is pretty generally invoking some deep cuts in the fandom. Certainly novices, new fans aren't going to know these references. Even casual fans, people who know some Star Trek and have enjoyed it and are thinking they're going to check out the new show, are almost certainly not people who have watched Enterprise. And so and so I really enjoy that they are picking up these deep cuts, that they're so respectful, not just respectful for to the canon, but so clearly have mastered the canon, that they are finding these threads that they can tug on, not just for the sake of continuity, but actually just finding new stories to tell within the continuity or by looking at the continuity, asking questions like, whatever happened to the USS Defiant that we last saw on its way to Earth to make Hoshi the Empress of the Terran Federation? Yeah, no, that is a excellent way of putting it. That's very eloquently put. And then we also get some, you know, fun fan service Trekno babble uh, from Burnham this time here. Someone is like, hey, wait a second. The Defiant is like from now. And you're saying that it was this problem like 100 years ago. So what? And this is because the Defiant takes place in the original series timeline, but the Enterprise takes place about 100 years before. So how do these two things, you know, get together? And Burnham's like, oh, there was a temporal anomaly, which is basically <laughs> the explanation of several Enterprise plot points. Um, they really like to mess with time on that show in a way that is not always satisfying. But I do think that was funny where she just had this mouthful of Trekno babble that was like, don't think about it. Yes, right. Well, and that was a big complaint that fans had when those Enterprise episodes aired, which was that we can accept that the Defiant from the Tholian web, when it disappears, that it it is moving to another universe, to a parallel universe, to the mirror universe. But we cannot accept that it is doing that and also traveling back in time a century. We draw the line there. It's one or the other. <laughs> and uh, so I think that's a nice, it's a nice nod to the complaints that people had on the internet uh, circa 2004. Yeah, no, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. And it honestly, it made the idea of the Enterprise episodes so much more fun. Because I think so far, we've had a few complaints that Discovery is messing with canon. It's so close in time to TOS. And what is that going to do? You know, a lot of these center around the Spock plot points and the Sarek plot points. But here, I thought that this where Discovery is going, hopefully in the next a couple episodes, really made Enterprise more rich. Uh, and I, I thought that was great. Yeah, so I think that the plan that we're about to learn about suggests that we're going to discover in the next episode what did happen in the Mirror Universe after, but as a result of those two Enterprise episodes. And I'm pretty geeked out about this. Yeah. I'm real excited. I cannot wait. I think geeked out is really the theme of this episode that we're recording right now, because the, even though I said at the top that I wasn't a big fan of this episode, all we've done is basically be giddy for, you know, an hour and a half. So I think it's it's geeked out is right. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, I will I will move us away from from geeking out at least for a few moments here to talk about what the plan is. The the plan is this. Burnham will contact the Shenzhou and demand that she be retrieved because she is still the rightful captain of that ship, and she is going to bore the Shenzhou with her prisoner, Gabriel Lorca. 
and Tyler will serve as Burnham's bodyguard. And once they're on board, they'll be able to access the data that they need. This is an exciting plot, but there's something that I think is going on a little bit underneath the surface here, which is that I'm not sold on the veracity of Lorca's story. He claims to have found the information about the dimension-traveling USS Defiant on these rebel data crystals. I don't think he actually shows that data to anyone, and I don't really believe that that's the sort of information that these like Vulcan and Andorian rebels would have. So I'm wondering if this is not actually something that Lorca knows about because of his own position in Starfleet or possibly Section 31. And I'm also then wondering if the Defiant or something having to do with the Defiant is his actual objective here in the Mirror Universe, that he has, in fact, brought Discovery to the Mirror Universe to track down the Defiant for some reason. Hmm. That would be pretty cool. I hadn't caught that, but you're right, because he does say, oh, we need to get onto another ship to learn more. But then that creates the uh, the problem of, well, how did you learn this in the first place then um, if we don't have access to that data? And I completely missed that. Thank you for pointing it out. Well, and it might be legitimate that that is where he got the data, but it seems suspicious to me because everything else that we learn about this world, about the mirror universe from those from the data core, is that is Burnham telling us everything else that we hear. This is the only thing that we learn from Lorca, and I just don't think he actually shows his data to anybody. So we'll see. This is uh, this is something I might have wrong, and listeners might have real strong feelings about this, so they can certainly pop over to the forum and, and take me to task on it. Uh, I'll look forward to that. But I'm I'm. Re- Really looking at Lorca with a suspicious eye in this episode. Yeah, which is usually I'm the one doing that. You usually are blinded by Jason Isaacs. But, you know, Lorca's not a character that shows his hand, even when he's not doing anything wrong. And we've been tricked by this before. Also, for some reason, just listening to you say his full name, Gabriel Lorca, made me realize that if we start calling him Gabe, he seems a lot less scary. Yeah, it's true. Gabe seems like someone I'd like to have a pint with. Lorca seems like someone I should be terrified of. Right? Yeah, I mean, it really is powerful. <laughs> What's in a name? But yeah, you know, Gabe's cool. We'll see what happens with Gabe. All right. Well, our next scene is in sick bay. Tyler is worried that something is wrong with his mind, and he wants Dr. Colbert to check him out before he goes on this super important mission over to the Shenzhou. And Dr. Colbert's a little reticent about this. Uh, they did all the necessary tests when he came on board, but he guesses that he could run some deeper scans on Tyler now. And just as they're about to do this, from his bed, the the loopy Stamets shouts, stay out of the palace. And of course, this is this is obviously a warning, which alert us that something bad is going to come from these tests. But it also results in Dr. Colbert going over to his bed to comfort Stamets. And, and this is a really tender moment here. Oh, my gosh, this scene. Oh, my gosh. Go ahead. I'll let you talk about it. I'm just going to sit here and melt. Yeah, earlier I I described Dr. Colbert, I think, as just being, you know, full of love and being this this genuine caregiver. And we really see that here in this scene. And we see how much he loves and, and cares for Stamets, how much he wants him to be comfortable and how worried about him he is. And we see that it goes both ways because Stamets, even in this loopy state, has this very brief lucid moment. We could see that with his eyes where he begs Dr. Colbert to be careful because the enemy is here. 
there's a couple things here in this scene that that I thought were wonderful in addition to what you've already pointed out. One one question that I have is I wonder if where they're going with the palace is some sort of mind palace. This is a, a trope that's kind of existed among literary figures for a long time that that your mind might contain a, a palace or a, a theater worth of information. And when, you know, Stamets is saying stay out of the palace, that this might be some sort of reference to the alteration, the mental alterations that Tyler has undergone and just the fortitude or lack thereof of the mind. But maybe I am, you know, taking that too far. I don't know. Glenn, did you have, did that strike, did that thought strike you? I had two thoughts about the use of palace here. I mean, it's something Stamets is saying. It's something Stamets says several times during the episode. So I think it has to have meaning. And I do think that this, its use here certainly suggests that it is being invoked in the sense of memory palace, that the person he's actually telling to stay out of the palace is Tyler. Don't go deeper into your mind. You know, if you want to remain Tyler, you need to stay on the surface of your brain. If you go deeper, if you go further in, if you go into the palace, you will become Voke or, or some other Klingon at least. But I did also wonder about palace and its relationship with a monarchy, with an empire, with the emperor, uh, who we've had mentioned here already. Um, and I'm wondering if this is not a bit of foreshadowing about where our characters are going to end up in this next Mirror Universe episode, if we might actually end up in the Imperial Palace on Earth. Oh, I would really love it if it's both. <laughs> I would really love it if it's both. Really glad I'm talking to you about this, because this is exciting. It gets it gets more exciting as you kind of fill in the gaps that my mind didn't fill in. And, and I hope I'm doing the same for you and that we together are doing this for listeners. Two other things that I thought were really wonderful in this scene center around the kiss, which is that Colbert kisses Stamets. And that's what brings him back into his normal state for a moment, where the eyes shift back to regular Stamets for just a moment. And one, I thought it was a lovely parallel to the fact that Tilly earlier was trying to jog Stamets's memory um, or himself, you know, back into reality with something familiar. And she chose annoying him at work. Um, <laughs> and here... It's actually his partner's kiss that is something so familiar that it wakes him back up. So that was a really beautiful parallel. They do these little things in the show. They're, they're really paying attention to detail. The other thing is I thought it was kind of a fun Sleeping Beauty thing, like a 2018 Sleeping Beauty moment. You know, Prince Charming comes over and kisses you and you are at least momentarily saved. Yeah, that's a great catch. I don't think I, I guess I actually just hadn't really thought that through I, either the, the significance of the kiss or the parallel. It is a nice philosophical statement to claim that the that love is a more powerful emotion than irritation. Uh, I wonder how many of us really feel that way in our daily lives. <laughs> I um, certainly gonna, don't. <laughs> I know, and I'm gonna tr I'm gonna try to be more cognizant of it. And th thank you for the uh, the self help uh, for the self improvement. You're welcome. Always here to help. <laughs> Yeah, and I think we might just want to close out talking about the scene with this little comment that Colbert makes that, again, you know, we know he's speaking to our knowledge as the audience where he says, you know, I don't really need to run any scans. It's not like you're having any lapses in memory or anything. Um, and Tyler's like, oh, nope, nope, not, nope, not those. <laughs> but we know that he is. So here we know that 
Colbert is being asked to do something medically when he doesn't have all the information and Tyler is again concealing what's going on um, with him and Laurel. And this scene was just full of foreshadowing the first time I watched it and of course full of foreboding the second time I watched it. Uh, we will we will get to the fulfillment of that foreboding soon enough. Uh, but we have a couple scenes in between before we get to the completion of of Tyler's medical story here. So we go now to the Spore Lab where Tilly and Burnham are talking about their roles in the plan. And Tilly says that she is 60% terrified and 40% excited to take on the persona of Captain Tilly. And she doesn't know how she can play the role of someone known as the Slayer of Sorna Prime, right? She doesn't know how to act with that kind of brutal strength. But Burnham tells her that Terran strength is painted rust. It's a facade put on out of fear of everyone around them. And that Tilly can derive true strength from her crew. Burnham says, fortify yourself with our faith in you. And I really, really loved this bit of dialogue for uh, a number of reasons. One, I thought painted rust was a magnificent metaphor. Yeah, it was beautiful. I agree. But I also thought that this contrast here between a strength born out of isolation and a strength born out of the bonds of community or family was pretty profound. And to me this and, and to me this then gets back to the heart or the central question of this episode which is about about asking us who we are and it's asking us if we are stronger alone or stronger together if our identity comes from standing apart from other people or or engaging with them Yeah I think that this even goes beyond this episode right because Think about how we opened this show in the two-part pilot, right, with this idea that we have the open and diverse federation against the Klingons who want nothing to do with any outsiders or anyone who is different or anyone else who is Klingon. And yeah, they have their own kind of community within them, but they're really not – they're really closed off to other people. And, you know, what are the perils of that? And what might the perils of that be to contemporary society? Because Star Trek is trying, it, it, Star Trek is always trying to make some sort of comment on the current state of the world that we live in. And I think that's being brought up here again. Is it better to be closed off from other people? Are we stronger? Are we in some way more united or better off that way? Or is it stronger to to engage lovingly with those around us and take strength from that? So it works on a, a kind of a micro level within this episode, but also on a macro level within the show and its relation to the time that it's airing. Yeah, we might also really look at it from this perspective of of motivation as well, which is maybe to ask the question of the question perhaps of what is the stronger motivation? Doing things out of your own fear for survival or doing things to protect those that you love? Oh, that's a fantastic question because it ties so perfectly into what Lorca is dealing with, with the Baran. Yeah, that's right. I hadn't thought about that. That's a really great catch. Yeah, and I know we're asking a lot of questions and then not answering them and then really geeking out and getting excited about asking more questions, but that's what we love about Trek. It makes us ask these questions and you know we can't answer them all here on the podcast for you, but but I'm going to take them with me into my week and my life and think about them and 
I hope that listeners do that too, or just the viewers of the show are doing that too. I'm certainly going to take all of these questions with me during my week as well. But I think it is time for us to follow Tilly into her transformation uh, as she gets all business and calls the Shenzhou, which we learn here is captained by Connor, who we last saw during the battle at the binaries when he was being blown out into space right in front of Burnham. Uh, This was I was surprised to see him here. And and so was Burnham. And her, her comment is just on point, you know, where she says, I kind of like I knew we would beat people here from from our universe, but I didn't know it was going to be like this. And I didn't know it was going to be this hard. And she just says that point blank into the camera. Yeah, it's going to get harder for her. And I'm I'm really interested in her arc here. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in this episode, not only about identity, but about confronting your choices and confronting, you know, the ghosts of your own past, literally and metaphorically and kind of a brilliant narrative choice. Well, and Connor is equally surprised to see that Burnham is alive, but he doesn't want to rendezvous with them. Captain Tilly, however, gets him to do it by threatening to cut out his tongue and to use it to lick her boot. And I want to be clear that Connor is not frightened by Tilly's threat so much as aroused by it. Yeah, I I definitely, they knew what they were doing with this line. I didn't think boot was going to be what came at the end of that sentence. And I think that was the point of that sentence. It was real gross. Let's just call it that. <laughs> uh, I think perhaps we, we can, we can move on from that and, uh, and, and pick up with Tyler's uh, story here, which is about to get very serious. His test results are in Dr. Colbert reveals that he has been physically altered, that he, he's been reshaped, and, and so now Dr. Colbert is wondering if Ash Tyler might not actually be a personality that's been imprinted onto someone else's mind. This scene was fascinating because we as audience members, even if we kind of maybe already had an idea about the Vogue Tyler situation in the back of our minds, didn't quite know how it happened. One possibility was definitely some matriarch magic. But here, this is some very physical reconstruction that we're talking about. And even though it feels like we talked about before that the most likely scenario is that there is a Tyler Vogue connection here, it the scene doesn't make it explicit. Colbert is like, something was implanted over something else. Something was changed into something else. But I can't tell you really which way is which or, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg a little bit in this scene. It's left a little bit of a mystery. There's there's the two things going on here. There's the what's happening with Tyler's mind and what has been done to Tyler's body. And it does seem to me that the implication or what we're supposed to infer from Dr. Colbert's description of of the truncating of Tyler's spine and his radius, for example, is to suggest that a larger body has been transformed into a smaller body, which is to say, I think we're meant to understand that a Klingon body has been surgically altered so that it can be so that it will be human shaped. Yeah. And Tyler's kind of a skinny little thing, too. Yeah, there is that as well. Uh, But yeah, as far as what's going on with his mind, I mean, it is not clear what is what is happening as you say this sort of chicken and egg is a is a real good way to think about it and i think that there are some other questions that we might ask as well if what we're dealing with is that this is physically 
Vogue and that Ash Tyler is a personality that's been imprinted into Vogue's mind or imprinted onto Vogue's mind. Where did the Ash Tyler personality come from? Is there a real Ash Tyler? Is there a real pregnancy of meaning then to Ash Tyler being the character to express concern about meeting another version of himself earlier in the episode? Oh, interesting. Very interesting questions. I I hadn't I hadn't considered them. And I certainly hadn't considered, though it makes perfect sense now that I see it. Are we going to learn maybe in the next episode that there is no Ash Tyler in the database that they find on the Terran computers that maybe there's simply a Voke parallel, but not an Ash parallel? Oh, that's really fantastic. You're right. Tyler is the only character who's doppelganger, who's mirror universe counterpart. We haven't heard anything about that's fantastic. Yeah, that, that seems like that has to come back to haunt us very soon. Yeah, thanks for helping my mind get there, because, whoa. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's what we do. And of course, I mean, there are so many possibilities with what's going on here. Um, In fact, we could endlessly speculate about this. Perhaps we should cut it off there. But I would like to invite listeners to write in with critiques of our speculations and the speculations of their own as well. But I think we can carry on with this scene here. Dr. Colbert is not going to let Tyler do anything until they figure out who he really is. This is serious business. And at that moment, when Dr. Colbert says that, Tyler hears Laurel's voice in his head. And I think without any emotion registering on his face, he reaches out and he snaps Dr. Colbert's neck and kills him. And... I don't know about you, Valerie, but I was completely shocked by this. And it bothered me all night. I straight up shouted. And then five minutes later came to realizing that my hands were over my mouth and my nose. And I had just been staring at the episode, not paying attention uh, for five minutes. Like I'd come out of a trance or something like shock. Yeah, I I took this pretty hard. I, I mean, I didn't see it coming. I guess that's one thing. I was shocked. I was surprised by it. But also, I just loved Dr. Colbert, and we just saw him being so tender. I mean, it was a perfect setup for us to really be impacted by his brutal death, right? It's it's not that the suddenness of the death, it's the brutality of the death, I think, that bothered me more than the contrast of that brutality with Dr. Colbert's own tenderness. Yeah, and the quickness, just the complete lack of time to prepare, basically, which is what creates shock value but makes it all the more difficult to watch. Well, I'm not really sure that we're going to be able to properly assess Dr. Colbert's death. Yeah, there's certainly no time to process what we just witnessed happens. No time within the episode. We move straight on. Yeah, process is right. I guess that's really what I was meaning. So I think let's keep with the spirit of the episode and and, and quickly move on to our next scene where Burnham and Lorca are getting ready to beam over to the Shenzhou. And Tyler arrives late and when Lorca asks him where he was, he says that he he's not sure. And I think we have to believe this, right? I think that we have to take at face value that Tyler doesn't remember murdering Dr. Kolber just a few minutes ago. Yeah, and I think that Lorca is taking it as, we're in a high-stress situation, Tyler's being glib, and I don't have time for this, so whatever. Stop being late, but let's go. And it really gets glossed over when it's a very serious point, as we know. 
<laughs> well, when our heroes arrive on the Shenzhou, Captain Connor asserts his dominance. He explains that he's improved the ship in Burnham's absence, and he then tries to take Lorca from her. But Burnham is not having it. And I really loved this scene. I love how quickly, how easily, and how convincingly she steps into this role. It was a little terrifying. It was almost too easy in a way. Like she was stepping into a part of herself she spends a lot of time repressing. Yes, and I'm I'm a little worried about where that's going. As am I. Well, for now, we're going to the brig, which is full of agonizer booths. And Lorca is going to have to get into one of them. But Burnham tries to avoid this. But here she's not able to pull it off. And so we know and Lorca knows that there is torture uh, in his near future. Yeah, these agonizer booths are actually the invention of Malcolm Reed on Enterprise, which again took place about 100 years before what we're watching now. And Glenn, if I'm not mistaken, they then reappear in TOS. And something else that's really creepy about the Mirror Universe and TOS is that so they have these agonizer booths, but also everyone is carrying around their own personal agonizer. And it is not a thing that they use to agonize other people. It's something that your CO, that your superior can use to agonize you on the spot if you have, you know, hit the wrong button on the transporter or done a bad job of mopping or, you know, brought lukewarm coffee instead of hot coffee or whatever it might be. Well, now it is time for Burnham to get on with the mission, and she's got to leave Lorca behind to be tortured and go get the data about the Defiant In the turbo lift, she and Connor fight, and she has to kill Connor, uh, whose Prime Universe analog, of course, was someone she cared very much about. And this has to be painful. Now, she's seen Connor die twice, and now this time she's actually directly responsible for it. Yeah, the acting in this scene is superb. Like, her ability to conjure fear and horror at what she has had to do because as you mentioned earlier in the Terran Empire you murder is just part of advancement and survival and is expected there is a parallel there to be drawn with you know what we see of Klingon culture um, which I'm sure is no mistake in this particular story arc but wow she really convinced me of being in that moment I thought it was beautiful you're right there's some really great acting and acting choices going on in this scene. I I was particularly drawn to the moment in the fight when she suspends the gravity so they float upward. And we get this really cool camera shot. This is some interesting directing from Frakes here where the camera is above them in the turbo lift and we see them rise very quickly to the camera and they each have a different expression on their face. He is afraid or confused and she is determined and and just these facial expressions you know show us of course that and that burnham knew she was destroying the gravity but this took him by surprise so just even every moment of that scene each of the actors knew what their character was going through you know every shot of their face it was superbly done yeah and you know i hadn't thought about this before and and you could tell me glenn if you think this is too much of a stretch but There is a little bit of a Alice falling down the rabbit hole moment that comes from this particular camera perspective. Yeah, that's true. That is really interesting. And you had just said, you know, I wonder where Burnham's character is going to go because she seems to be a little too good at this. We know that Lewis Carroll, you know, and Alice in Wonderland have been a big part of the show so far. And this slow motion fall really reminds me of that. 
So maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but kind of beautiful if it isn't. No, I don't think that's a stretch at all. One of the Deep Space Nine Mirror Universe episodes actually uses a line from Alice in Wonderland, um, or actually it's it's really the, the other book, Alice Through the Looking Glass. Through the Looking Glass is the name of one of the Deep Space Nine Mirror Universe episodes. So I think it's perfectly fair to be reading any Mirror Universe episode with an eye on on Lewis Carroll, on on Alice, but we've since we've also had that explicitly here as part as a, an important part of Burnham's character and an important way of understanding what the themes are of this story. I I I, I think that's probably intentional. I think that's a great catch. But let's keep going here. When the turbo lift arrives on the bridge and the crew sees that Connor is dead, they slow clap for Burnham like this is a high school movie uh, as she assumes command. <laughs> And Jenny Weasley's head is the same in the mirror universe. I may have mentioned something about it while we were watching it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, this gets this scene is pretty creepy too. I mean, the slow clap is disturbing, I think, in in all of its forms. But the crew then, when she takes her seat, shouts in unison, "All hail Captain Burnham! Long live the Empire!" Uh, Burnham repeats the "Long live the Empire" part and. She looks like she means it. I mean, she really does seem to be made for this role here. I wasn't really paying attention to her. I was looking at the rest of the actors because I just kind of thought that was a funny moment. It read a little hokey to me. It broke the scary part for a second after the high school slow clap. Now that Burnham has assumed command of the Shenzhou and assumed this role, this mirror universe role, uh, she retires to her quarters where she removes her Terran Empire uniform Uh, and sits down for a talk with Tyler. And she explains that it's going to be hard to access the files they need secretly because her crew keeps trying to suck up to her. So this is really just a way of saying that we're going to be on this ship for a little while, that this story is not over yet. And Tyler changes the subject. He, He knows that she had to kill Connor, and he wants to comfort her about it. And he says that no matter what this place makes them do, no matter how they change, he will love her. And of course, we know that this statement will ultimately be less about what's going on in the mirror universe and is going to be more about his succumbing to or struggling with this other personality that's inside him, this other identity that's inside him. I was thinking the same thing, Glenn, that you know that that Tyler is saying this to her out of both love. Like, I think he really does mean it that no matter what you do, I will still love you. But he is mostly saying it out of self-preservation. So that later, when it probably inevitably comes out, who he quote-unquote really is or what his past is, that he can say, remember that time you promised that you would still love me? You promised. So you still love me, right? This is like, you know, an insurance policy for him or a security blanket. And it really beautifully gets at these moments where, where you know, we as people, we do ultimately care about ourselves and our own self-preservation and our interests and getting the love back from the people that we love. And that, that gets all mixed up with actually caring for them. And I'm sure this is going to lead to a plot point where Burnham is very upset and maybe questions her love for him. And this felt just really real to me. 
obviously it's fantastical and involves a Klingon changing into a human and a bunch of other, you know, sci-fi things that wouldn't happen in the real world. But the spirit of it is a place that probably all of us have been before. I feel so much pity for Tyler in this moment. As we do see all of this writing on the wall, we know that this story is unlikely to work out well for him, that his story in the episodes to come, probably the rest of the season, is going to be is going to be a story of agony as he wrestles with identities, uh, maybe fails to wrestle with identities, uh, and so do the people around him. This is certainly going to affect Burnham. It's going to affect Lorca as well, uh, who has almost adopted him in the same way that he's adopted Burnham, and. I think that we're going to end up getting some questions about what is the nature of love? What is the nature of our love for other people? But also, what does professing our love for someone, what does that really obligate us to? To what extent are we always obligated to love that person? How far should we go to protect that person, to uh, to care for that person, to try to save that person? before we have to give up. I suspect we're going to get maybe not all of those questions, but many of those types of questions posed to us uh, in the weeks to come. Yeah. And also, when is the right time for different modes of communication? You know, is it reasonable to say, I understand why Tyler is not fessing up to a lot of things, why he's not sharing things that maybe Burnham would probably like him to have shared? Or is communication key even in the midst of figuring something out when you don't have the answers yet? I think a lot of people wait to communicate until they have more information or they feel like they're on more stable ground. And Tyler is certainly doing that here. What's the right choice? Is there a best choice for a relationship and a best choice for oneself? And are they the same? I think this is a great question, Valerie. And I think we often wrestle with this? Is it better to just say, I don't know what's going on, but I'm afraid of something, something is not right? Or is it better to wait until you have the answers? And this is not always a selfish thing. Sometimes you're thinking about not wanting to bother or scare or worry your partner or your parents or your child or sibling unduly, unnecessarily. And we can see that some of that might be going on here. But I do think it is all complicated in Tyler's situation by the fact that it's not maybe all that clear what he really remembers about what's happening. I think, I do believe that he doesn't know he killed Dr. Kolber. And I wonder if he is forgetting the confrontations with Laurel also. I think he remembers the confrontations with Laurel. He seems a little bit more cogent when he steps out of those scenes. Like he knows he shouldn't have been there and he feels a little guilty about it rather than in other scenes where he seems like he's coming out of a haze and he, he doesn't really know where he is. Um, that's my guess. It you know None of this is explicit on the show, but I think he knows he's hiding that. Well, I think that's a really good question to leave this scene on. But before we leave the episode, we get a little coda in which we see Captain Lorca in an agonizer booth. And and while that's the end of Despite Yourself, it's not the end of our episode tonight, Valerie, because you have a cocktail for us. I do. And I have to admit, I'm really excited about this one. I feel like it came out really well and it went where I wanted it to go. So I'm, for lack of a better term, I'm stoked to tell you about it. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear about it. Uh, I think you, you texted me some teases earlier today. So I, I have been uh, anxiously awaiting this for hours now. 
So I was thinking a lot about classic Trek spirits, and one of these, which um, is referred to as Aldebaran whiskey, is also called the green drink. It's this bright green, kind of pungent-looking spirit that we see in funnily-shaped bottles in the original series, and that actually reappears in the Enterprise episodes when the Enterprise crew boards the Defiant, and they're in these bedrooms and ready rooms and offices that look exactly like the original series sets. So all of this kind of original series alcohol is just lying about. So I set myself to the task of trying to create a bright green whiskey drink. Glenn, have you ever tried to do this? Whiskey typically is brown or amber, which I think is pretty hard to turn into green. So I, I really want to know how you did this. Well, it turns out that there is such a thing called white whiskey. And That just means it's unaged whiskey, which just means it's moonshine. (laughs) Yeah, of course. That's right. Because it takes the color from the from the from aging in the barrels. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I thought that if I went with moonshine, it would still get at the spirit of whiskey, but might allow some color to come through. And I think this worked out really well. So I took my inspiration from not only Aldebaran whiskey, but from an old fashioned uh, with a few green twists. So this drink, you make it just like you make an old fashioned, though some of the ingredients are obviously different. You start out with a sugar cube, which you soak in just a tiny bit, just enough to get it wet of green absinthe. And you muddle the sugar cube into the absinthe. Um, just like you would with bitters in an old fashion. And to that, you add two ounces of moonshine. And I think the the taste um, of moonshine and its finish can really vary from brand to brand. Here I used the standard Wormwood Distillery moonshine, um, which is a, a local distillery here in New York. And it's really good. Glenn, I haven't had moonshine before. Have you? I have, and I have never enjoyed it, but yeah. I will look forward to trying this. I was expecting, this is what you hear about moonshine, is that it's kind of foul, but this is a really, really good. If you can get your hands on some of the standard Wormwood Distillery moonshine, it's fantastic, even to drink alone. It's strong, mind you, but it's very good. So to that absinthe muddled sugar cube, you add two ounces of moonshine and then two bar spoons, more if you like, of green chartreuse. And the green isn't quite as pungent as it is on screen, but you can't really get that in any kind of natural way. So I'll settle for a green tint. And that's the drink. I have named it the Defiant. Oh, that's marvelous. So the drink itself sounds delicious. You and I have a long history with chartreuse together. So I think that's really (laughs) appropriate. And I like it quite a bit. Uh, But also the Defiance is such an important ship in Star Trek. This is now the fourth Star Trek series to invoke the Defiance. So it certainly deserves it certainly deserves a drink of its own. So that that's that's awesome. I can't wait to try this. I also think, you know, the absinthe, the, you know, kind of the, the mythos of absinthe, makes sense for this episode with, you know, stepping outside of yourself or hallucinating or seeing some other version of the world makes sense for this episode. And Defiance also makes sense as well for Discovery as a whole. So I was pretty pleased with this drink. And Glenn, I hope I can share it with you soon or you can get your hands on this moonshine because it really is good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Maybe I'll just have to to, to, to make the journey up to New York or entice you to, to head down to, to Philadelphia. 
But now that we're making travel arrangements so that I can try a cocktail, I think that's going to do it for this episode. But we'll be back next week. And until that time, I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Valerie Hoagland. And you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Come on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you think Captain Lorca is up to. What does he know and when did he know it? I would love to hear your theories. I'd also like to know if other people have tried moonshine (laughs) Um, and what they thought of it. But until then, stay spacey.